talk about some more people who left us in 2012, starting with Arthur Ox Sulzberger, described as perhaps the most influential publisher in the history of the New York Times. But it was noted Sulzberger, known almost universally as Punch, wore his power lightly. Upon learning one day that his editorial page was about to oppose a congressional candidate he and his wife were close friends with, he said nothing. But the next day he did send the wounded friend a dozen roses. Described as the L.A. Times as the scion of the Oaks-Sulzberger family, which had published the New York Times since 1986, his first real job was as a U.S. Marine serving in Japan as a Jeep driver for General Douglas MacArthur and then as a public information officer in Korea. He did finally join the family trade as a reporter in 1953, but his skills are described as proving far from dazzling. In 1963, he was a lowly assistant treasurer at the Times. When his brother-in-law died suddenly, he was thrust into the position of being the publisher. He overcame his inexperience to forge a reputation as an innovator. He developed the concept of the op-ed page in 1970, created sports, science, and culture sections in the 70s that, though common now, were considered a betrayal of the paper's serious history back then. Sulzberger's defining moment came in 1971 when he defied government demands he not publish the Pentagon Papers. Richard Nixon, outraged at the paper's coverage, secured a court order in the name of national security to prevent further publication of a series of pieces. The Times challenged the injunction and was, was eventually vindicated by the Supreme Court in a ruling that established the primacy of a free press in the face of a government's insistence on secrecy. On that, we'd refer you to our own archives where we talked to Michael Trackman about some of the great Supreme Court decisions in history, and we did discuss that particular decision. And I want to have at least one obituary from a not-famous person, just one that I saw in the Sacramento Bee. The man's name was William Musladen. Although he did not live very far from me in Sacramento, I did not know this gentleman, but I found his story interesting, so I think I should relate it. William Musladen was a retired Air Force veteran of three wars, and he led Planned Parenthood in Sacramento. Noted Robert Davila and the Bee, Mr. Musladen followed an unlikely path from bombing enemy targets to leading a corps of volunteers promoting family planning. He served 26 years in the military, starting as a B-17 navigator bombardier over Europe during World War II. He flew night raids during the Korean War and served with the Strategic Air Command in Turkey and Morocco. On his last tour of duty, he was an intelligence officer in Saigon during the Vietnam War. He retired as a lieutenant colonel in 1967 with two distinguished flying crosses, a Bronze Star, seven air medals, and many other military decorations. He then settled in Sacramento and joined Planned Parenthood Association in 1969 as executive director. 
He told the bee, I think anyone who's banged around the planet, as you're bound to do in a military career, has seen enough of human misery. And it doesn't take a very perceptive individual to realize the relationship between uncontrolled human fertility and poverty, unemployment, and disease. Mr. Musladin volunteered for many years with the Sacramento County Sheriff's amateur radio program and assisted on stakeouts with other ham radio operators. Noted the B, his efforts helped capture many suspects in burglary, robbery, rape, and peeping Tom cases. Sounds like this gentleman led a meaningful and interesting life, and I think that's uh, what we should all aspire to. I'm down to about a dozen minutes, and I don't know what to do. I want to tell you about uh, creepy cult leader Sun Mung Moon, shadowy CIA-associated uh, international arms dealer Edwin P. Wilson, Watergate figure Charles Colson, Indian activist Russell Means, and Senator Daniel Inoue from Hawaii, but uh, we don't have time for those. But I should do Inoue anyway. No, that's not a play on words. Daniel Inoue was the first Japanese-American ever elected to Congress. He came to Hawaii in 1959, among their first crop of representatives in the House. In 1962, he was elected to the Senate, where he remained up till his death, becoming at one point the Speaker pro tem of the Senate, and thus the third person in line for the presidency. The senator was probably Hawaii's most important patron in Washington, D.C. He was the longtime chairman of the Appropriations Defense Subcommittee, and since 2009, anyway, of the entire Appropriations Committee. Daniel Inoue ensured that Hawaii, once a far-flung agriculture outpost, received a steady flow of dollars to develop military sites and modern transportation, communication, and educational systems. He grew up in Hawaii, planning to become a doctor. When as a teenager, barely out of high school, he joined what would become a revered Army Regiment of Japanese Americans, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. On an Italian battlefield two years later, he destroyed three enemy machine gun nests, even though bullets tore through his stomach and legs. A grenade nearly ripped off his right arm, and it was later amputated in an Army hospital. For his efforts, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor. But uh, rather poignantly, while back in the United States, the young lieutenant was wearing his empty right sleeve when he entered into a San Francisco barber shop for a haircut. Said the barber, we don't serve Japs here. The senator would gain national prominence when he took part in Senator Sam Irvin's Watergate hearings. I guess he got along fairly well with Sam Irvin later, but uh, apparently when he first got in the Senate and walked over to introduce himself, I guess in 1962... Irvin said, yeah, I know who you are. How many one-armed Japs think we got around here? Anyway, we're going to have to end off here. I want to talk about Richard Zanuck, Celeste Holm, the writer Nora Ephron. My God, Nora Dom Sihanouk. He died last year, and I want to tell you about him. But, you know, I, I just there's, there's just too many people. So I guess I'm forced to do a, an obituary lightning round where I talk about people that don't need a great deal of discussion, but maybe we can fit a few in that way. All right, how about uh, astronomer Patrick Moore? He passed away at age 89 last year. Apparently, Patrick Moore's BBC program, The Sky at Night, started in 1957 and was still going when he passed away. Noted the obituaries, many of the world's great astronomers had appeared on the program as well as several astronauts, including Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong! We'll have to bring Matt Kaplan of Planetary Radio on to talk about Neil Armstrong. 
I know Patrick Moore certainly was a crusty figure that uh, took some contrary positions to that of a lot of uh, mainstream astronomers. At one point, he collaborated with uh, guitarist Brian May from Queen in writing a book. I guess Brian May has a, uh, a degree in astrophysics. Somewhat unusual for a rock guitarist. In his autobiography, Patrick Moore described meeting many of the giants of aeronautics, science, and space exploration, including Orville Wright. Said Moore, he was quiet, unassuming. I liked him immensely. Oh my God, we haven't done Arlen Specter. We haven't done Ball Thackeray. Who's he? Well, I guess I would summarize him as a somewhat crazed, somewhat right-wing, somewhat fundamentalist Hindu politician from India who stirred up all kinds of trouble during his political career. And in the end, one of the economists may have left only one, one item in his legacy. The change of the city of Bombay's name to Mumbai. All right, we'll just do two more. We would like to note the passing of F. Sherwin Rowland, who shared the 1995 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for helping to discover that the chemicals used in hairspray, aerosol deodorants, and kitchen refrigerators was slowly destroying Earth's ozone layer. He died last March in his home in Corona del Mar. Mr. Rowland was a researcher at the University of California, Irvine, one of our sister campuses at UC Davis. I would note that uh, he was there when I was there, though sadly I never met uh, Dr. Rowland. Anyway... Thanks to the seminal research done by uh, Sherwin Rowland and Mario Molina, chlorofluorocarbons have been largely removed from modern industrial life, which means our ozone layer may have a chance of making it into the 21st century, which would be a good thing. All right, final obit before we talk about a few other things to wrap up the show. Phyllis Diller. For more comprehensive discussion of Phyllis Diller, we refer you to our own interview with author Gerald Nachman about his wonderful book, Seriously Funny, The Rebel Comedians of the 1950s and 1960s. All I'm going to do here is steal one of Phyllis Diller's great one-liners, which is, I spent seven hours today at the beauty parlor, and that was just for the estimate. Anyway, I know it's a little unusual to talk about obituaries, especially for most of an entire program, but uh, these were some great people that we lost last year, and I think their, uh, their lives are worthy of a few words on our part. All right, before we t close today's program, we have to do one feature that uh, we've sort of skipped over in our haste to talk about some notables of the past year, which would be the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for tax collection, possibly, with the news that the leader of the Caribbean's biggest tax haven has been arrested on suspicion of corruption. Oh, my goodness. Cayman Islands Prime Minister Makiva Bush is being investigated for alleged theft, abuse of office, and conflict of interest involving imports of explosives. 
Bush, who's described as also being the finance minister, is extremely influential in the British offshore territory. The Cayman Islands is the world's sixth largest financial center, with $1.6 trillion in officially booked international assets. Note of the week, numerous private equity and hedge funds have their nominal headquarters there in order to avoid U.S. taxes and financial disclosure regulations. And you know, when those folks stash their money in the Cayman Islands and don't pay taxes on it, you know who does? Yes, we do, dear listener. Well, on the other hand, a bad week last week for human rights in Cuba. After the Cuban government arrested more than 100 dissidents to prevent them from demonstrating on International Human Rights Day, a leader of the group known as the Ladies in White said they were rounded up as they held their weekly protest march outside a Havana church. Said Alejandrina Garcia, they told us we were being provocative. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for American wildlife when it was revealed that a Yellowstone wolf, dubbed the most famous in the world, was shot just outside the national park borders in Wyoming. There are about 90 wolves in the park. This wolf, described as an alpha female, was the eighth fitted with a GPS collar to be killed in recent weeks, reigniting debate over hunting. Wyoming lifted the gray wolf's protected status on October 1st. Why? I guess because a lot of jackasses like to shoot animals so they can bag different trophies and have bragging rights. As we talked about in this program, the reintroduction of wolves to our national parks has had a tremendously positive effect on the wildlife in general. The wolves cull the elk. There's not as many elk to mow down all of the uh, sprouting forests, and with more forest cover, the animals are thriving. All right, that about does it for time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And as we go out, I guess we can refer to one final breaking news obituary, the passing of Fontella Bass. She had a great hit back in 1965 with Rescue Me. It was a major crossover hit, reaching number four in the Billboard's pop charts. Fontella Bass told the New York Times back in 1989, when we were recording that, I forgot some of the words. Back then, you didn't stop while the tape was running, and I remembered from the church, what I do if you forget the words. I sang, um, 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 and it worked out just fine. That does it, folks. We'll see you next week. I know this year ends at 13, but I feel pretty lucky about it.